0: Um this morning, our old testament reading uh I chose isaiah fifty two seven in part because uh it has as peace in it which is what I want to continue to talk about this morning peace uh but also in many ways uh zechariah's uh poem or announcement or prophecy is uh, is is doing exactly what Isaiah 52 7 says and and I'm just going to read it real quick again how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news and this is exactly what Zechariah is bringing uh, to them back 2,000 years ago and to us this morning Uh, he is bringing good news he is bringing the gospel how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, and who reminds us all who need reminding, your God reigns. Your God reigns. And this is exactly what Zechariah is doing this morning. He is saying to us, he's reminding us, your God reigns and there is salvation available and there is happiness and, and good news. And this is the message I bring this morning as well. Let us begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, you desire that we know your reign. It is a reign of love, and of mercy, and you have sacrificed so much that we might be with you, that we might be united with you. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you give us ears to hear. I pray that you prick our hearts anew, that we might hear something that perhaps we've heard a thousand times before, but we needed to hear it one thousand and one times before it finally set in and before we finally believed it, and before we finally lived it out. And so, God, this morning, as we gather together in your house, may you speak a word to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Uh, This morning, uh, indeed, I want to spend all of my time, actually, in uh, the book of Luke uh, I should have had my uh, Bible turned there. Luke chapter 1, if you'll turn there with me. Uh, So what's going on at this point uh, in Luke's gospel? Very early on, obviously, it's chapter 1, but we're toward the end of it all, uh, the end of chapter 1, that is. Uh, And uh, we are getting to the point where uh, John the Baptist has just been born, And there are two babies uh, in Luke's gospel uh, that share screen time, so to speak. Uh, One uh, is, of course, Jesus, and the other is John the Baptist. And uh, these two stories, they weave in and out of each other in the first chapter of Luke, and what we get is, uh, if you recall the story of, uh, of John the Baptist and his parents, is he's, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest, and he sees this angel, and the angel says, uh, you are going to have a child, and he disbelieves, actually. He, he was uh, settled on the fact that his wife was going to be barren the rest of her life. And perhaps if uh, any of you have struggled with infertility in uh, your life or your marriage or, you know, people who have, uh, this, is, this is a common response. But, but indeed, the angel comes and says, you will have a baby. And, and, and he, in his disbelief, is struck mute. And he cannot speak and there's this funny scene that happens where he, he leaves the temple and he has to explain to people what's happening and so he's like using hand motions, but there's not American Sign Language at this point and so he doesn't know how to get his point across and, and he's having to draw things in the sand and, and explain what has happened to him. And then nine months later is where we are now. Nine whole months have gone by And he hasn't been able to say a word. He has been mute this whole time until finally, in these moments, he believes. Because what happens just before our passage is that Elizabeth says that John the Baptist is born, they take him to the temple after eight days, and at this point they name the child and she says his name is to be John. And everybody around, doesn't, they, they don't believe her because, well, there are no relatives named John, apparently, in their family. And so they say, well, that, surely this can't be. And so they go to Zechariah, and they say, well, what's his name? And he, again, gets out the pad and pencil, and he, he, he says, John. And in this moment, the belief sets in, and his mouth is opened, and he has... Essentially, nine months of of pent-up words that have not come out, right? And this man's a priest, so maybe he's preaching sermons on a regular basis before all this, and now suddenly he doesn't have that platform, and he needs to say something. He's wanting to say something, and we finally, at the end of Luke, we get Zechariah's first words, and they're beautiful. It's poetry, and what we read this morning, well, it's often called the benedictus because of the first word. Uh, it's a benediction. It's a, it's a blessing. And he starts with, with a blessing. But, but we see in the verse that kind of leads all of this off that the father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying... And you can imagine this man who has had all of these thoughts and ideas and emotions stored up in his heart for nine whole months finally gets to release them, right? And this is what he says. He says, blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, which is a very common thing to say and to read in your scripture, the, the blessing of God. However, I don't know if you've thought about this. Uh, I hadn't, actually. But what does it really mean to bless God? I, I, I think we all know what it means for God to bless us. We've experienced God's blessings in our lives, perhaps, right? Right? We might even know what it means to bless one another. But what in the world could it mean to bless God? I have a few thoughts very quickly. I do think it has something to do with offering thanks and praise to God. And so, for example, in Psalm 100, verse 4, we read, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with, with praise, and it says give thanks to him, and then it concludes with bless his name, right? So we're to enter the courts with praise, and we're to give thanks, and we are to bless his name. They're all used just back to back to back, and the, there's some kind of connection here between giving thanks and, and praising God and blessing God. All of these things are wrapped up together. Or Psalm 145.10, very similarly. All the works shall give thanks to you, O God, and all of your saints shall bless you. Giving thanks and blessing God. Seem to be connected. Last one here from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And here again, uh, we get this idea of blessing connected with uh, the, the singing or the praising or the thanking but we can, we, in this verse, we get it connected to one more thing, which is, is telling of the salvation of God. And this is exactly, exactly what we find in Zechariah's prophecy here that we're reading today. And so to bless God, as Zechariah says, bless the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, it means to, to give thanks, and it means to praise God but also it means to remember and to count our own blessings and to remind ourselves of the ways in which God has blessed us again and again and again and to offer that back to God and to say thank you. We praise you, God, for the goodness that you are. Before I continue... This whole passage in Luke chapter 1 and and the prophecy of uh, Zechariah can be split into two parts. Uh, You'll notice there's only two periods, in fact, in most translations anyway, the one I'm reading from, certainly. And and the first part, uh, it starts in verse 68 and it ends in 75. And this is the blessing to God bless the Lord, and it says all the ways in which we are to bless the Lord, but frankly, it's all the ways in which God has blessed us. And then the second half of it all starts in 76 and ends in 79, and this is where uh, Zechariah turns to his own son and offers a blessing to his son. And he tells us the ways in which John the Baptist is involved in all of God's good works. And the ways in which you and I, too, fit into the story of salvation. Let's read together again from starting in verse 68 and following. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You'll notice that the theme of redemption is throughout this uh, passage here. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You'll also notice we'll get lots of Old Testament allusions throughout all of this. It requires a lot of Old Testament knowledge, in fact, or at least it, it assumes it, And if you have it, it really makes this passage pop. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers, the promises to our fathers, And to remember his holy covenant. That holy covenant that God made through Moses with Israel. Perhaps the covenant made to David. Perhaps the covenant even made to Abraham. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then we finally get that first period. <laughs> and here's the end of the, the first section, right? If, uh, if I can just be a little nerdy for a second, please stick with me, stick with me. Uh, you might notice that uh, all of these uh, passages or uh, verses here are set off. They, they look like poem in, in uh, the ESV anyway and on our screen as well, right? It's not, it's not one continuous uh, paragraph. It's, they're all set off from one another. And so you might think, well, they all rhyme and this is, this is why. Uh, they, they don't rhyme, just so you know, uh, in the original Greek. But they do all end with the same uh, thing. And that is they end with, uh, and here's the nerdy part, uh, a preposition. A preposition, if you don't know, is a, uh, a word that stands in for another noun, right? And, okay, stick with me. Uh, and uh, it, it, it represents something else. And all of the prepositions here uh, that uh, all of these verses end with are either a representation of one of two things. God or us. God or us. Every single one. Every single uh, line ends with either God or us. Last uh, bit of nerddom uh, is that this is important because, because uh, you see, in Greek, you can order l- words in whatever order you want. It's not like English grammar. And so whatever you put first and whatever you put last matters because often you're trying to emphasize something by doing so. And so if you have a, uh, something last every single time, verse after verse after verse after verse, clearly the author is trying to emphasize something. And here is uh, the point of it all. What I think the author, Zechariah, is trying to emphasize here is that he is retelling the story of God and us on a macro scale, on a big scale. This is the story of God and us. And so if you look here, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed people his, (laughs) is how it reads. His people, obviously in English, but, but the his, it, it's, it's God's people. And this is the story of, of God and what God is doing for them and for our fathers and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers and for us to this very day. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And here, this, this horn of salvation, just in case you're not catching it because uh, we, we don't talk about horns much, um, this is definitely uh, battle language. You can think of maybe like the Civil War. Uh, I'm trying to think of like a modern example, and I, I, we don't have one. But taking that, that bugle into battle, right? And the idea is that who's leading this charge, who's, who's bugling, who is, who is leading us into battle and going to save us from our enemies? Well, it is none other than God, but it is someone in the house of the servant David. We all know this to be Jesus. We should be saved from our enemies And from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. I mean, Zechariah is literally jumping around the Old Testament and reminding us of all of these places in scripture where God, and he's pulling together the whole of it into one big narrative of the way we should be reading the Old Testament. And God, through the person of Jesus Christ, led by John the Baptist, well, he is saving the world. Jesus and his birth is something of a turning point. Not just in Scripture, though definitely that, but in the, the course of human history, right? And, and this turning point with Jesus should require you, and it, and it requires me, to, to rethink everything that comes before it. There's a guy named David Steinmetz. He's, he's a scholar, and, and uh, he, he describes uh, how we read the Bible like this. He, he talks about it in terms of the first narrative and the second narrative. The first narrative and the second narrative. And, and what he's saying is that, uh, that the Bible is a lot like a, a crime novel or a mystery novel or a, mov- a good movie that, that has kind of a twist at the end of it all. And in order to really understand that first narrative, that that Old Testament piece, right, you need to know how the story ends you need to know who that killer was in order to then reread the rest of that crime novel to make sense of everything that came before. And if, if the author is a good one, then when that, that killer is revealed at the end of the, the novel, it, it really opens up the rest of the story and you, and you rethink all of these scenes and you're like, yes, that is right. That's what was really happening through all of this. And, and the birth of Christ... And the person of Christ reveals God in such a way that it requires us to then go back to that first narrative, to the Old Testament, and to reread it and to realize this is how it is supposed to be read. This is how we make sense of it. The first narrative and the second narrative. And it is the second narrative that reveals that first narrative, which gets me to my point. Salvation is mentioned any number of times in all of this. So in verse 68, he, God has, has visited and redeemed his people. A, very much a salvation word here. Or the next verse, and he, he has raised up a horn of salvation. Or in verse seven, uh, 71, that we should be saved from our enemies, Or 74, that we being delivered, another salvation word here, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And so we have salvation on the one hand, but it's not salvation like they were talking about it in the Old Testament. Salvation in the Old Testament, not always but largely was salvation from a literal enemy, the people beyond the borders. Maybe it was Assyria. Maybe it was Babylon. Maybe it was the Philistines. And what Zechariah is doing is he's taking all of the same language and all of the same imagery and the same promises, and he's, he's recasting it in light of what is about to happen and what's going on in history at this point in time. And he requires us to rethink what it means to be saved. And then the second part is, because it talks about enemies multiple times here, is who who are our enemies? Now, there were people in Jesus' day and age who would have said that the Romans are the enemy, and if we just kick out that enemy, then then everything will be okay. That is not what Jesus says. That is not what our New Testament says, but there were certainly Jews in that day and age who said that very thing. And in some ways, they were reading that first narrative, the Old Testament, in a certain kind of light. But They didn't have the key to reading it properly. Who are the enemies? We read on. Verse 76. Zechariah now turns to his own son, and offers a blessing to John the Baptist. And he says, you, you child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Here again, like if you are a reader of scripture, if you know your scripture well, you hear this and you immediately think Isaiah 40, right? Prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist is this figure. Luke's going to even repeat that line later. Actually, all of the Gospels repeat that line. Prepare the way of the Lord. And here Zechariah is saying, You will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And now, now we're getting closer to what it means to answer the question, who are the enemies here? Who are the enemies here? And, and, and what is the salvation? Because we could think that, or well, some in his day and age thought that the enemy was indeed, maybe it was Herod, who was in league with Rome, Or maybe it was some other nation out there. But that is not the problem that needs saving and solving. We we read very clearly, and we actually saw it last week too, that when Jesus is is called Jesus, it's because he will save his people from their sins, is what Matthew said. That's what his name means, salvation. Salvation. And here we see it again to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Who is the enemy? Well, in many ways the enemy is is not out there her, is it? The enemy's in here. The enemy's within. Solzhenitsyn in his famous book, The Gulag Archipelago, uh, this gets quoted a lot, but he says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line of good and evil seems to cut between all of our hearts. And is this sin that indeed needs to be forgiven. And this is why Jesus comes. This is why John the Baptist prepares the way. And we read on in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Because of the tender mercy of our God, I love that phrase, tender mercy. I like thinking of God as as tender and merciful, right? Interestingly, uh, so I looked it up. That's not actually, uh, I I don't like to pick on translators because it's a tough job, but the thing is this word tender, it's actually much more visceral than that. It's not just a mercy that is that is soft or, or mild. It is a mercy that is at the core of the gut of God himself. And something is churning within there that is, that is, that is calling out for God to be merciful to his people. He sees their plight, our plight, and he, he, he can do nothing but have mercy upon us. It is Jesus hanging on the cross, crying out, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It is a, a visceral kind of mercy that God has. And this causes the light to shine from on high and to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I have had this quotation that I'm about to read to you for like eight months, and I've been sitting on it for a really long time, and I'm ready to deliver it. Uh, It's a quote from uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, John Wesley, who lived uh, approximately 300 years ago. And uh, a skeptic comes to him because uh, skepticism in religion begins uh, a little before this time and is kind of coming on the scene in the 18th century, Uh, much like our time today, uh, probably worse today. And a skeptic comes to John Wesley, and he says this, the skeptic, says, I hear that you preach to a great number of people every night and every morning. And then he asks them three questions. What would you do with these people, right? Where would you lead them? I guess it's four questions. (laughs) What religion do you preach? And what is it good for? What would you do with these people that you're preaching to? Where would you lead them? What religion do you preach? And what is it good for? You know now, I love good questions. And when I read just that opening little bit, I was captivated. I, I was ready for John Wesley's answers, one of the great theologians of history. And here's what he says. Wesley replied, I do preach to as many as desire to hear every night and every morning. You ask what I would do with them. I would make them virtuous and happy, easy in themselves and useful to others. That was not what I anticipated, and I love it. I would make them, he says, virtuous. That part, I get. Happy which probably has a a deeper resonance of happiness than, than what we use today. But it's this third one is easy in themselves, easy in themselves and useful to others. And where would I lead them? I would lead them to heaven, to God the judge, the lover of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And what religion do I preach? He says, I preach the religion of love. The law of kindness brought to light by the gospel. A religion of love. And this is what we find here with this visceral mercy of God, right? It is a religion of love. For God so loved the world that he could not help himself but do something about it. And he sent his son, Jesus. And the law of kindness. I don't know if you've ever read the law. That is the Old Testament law. It's not always filled with butterflies and rainbows back there. But John knows how to read the second narrative. That is, John Wesley knows how to read the second narrative. And the law of kindness is what he would point us to as a way of understanding God's very nature and why he gives the law at all. The law of kindness brought to light by the gospel. And what is it good for? To make all who receive it enjoy God. Let that one sink in. What is this good for? To make all who receive it enjoy God and themselves. To enjoy God and themselves. To make them like God. Lovers of all, content in their lives, and crying out at their death. In calm assurance, O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be unto God who gives me the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ. I read that quote and I thought this is jam packed with all sorts of good and beautiful and true sentiments that we all need to hear this on a regular basis. Because sometimes the religion that I hear doesn't quite line up with these sorts of things. Or the people that I encounter on the street who call themselves Christians don't come across as entirely virtuous or like God, being made in God's image. Or perhaps they're not lovers of all, they're just lovers of some. And how many of us are not content in our lives? The end of this whole passage that Luke gives us and is Zechariah's prophecy leads toward, toward one thing. One thing. It's guiding our feet into the way of peace. The way of peace. And by way, just so we're clear, it's a road. hadas, road or path. A path of peace is where we're all heading. And there's two things you've got to walk away with here as far as what this means. Is that peace is not a place. Maybe, maybe ultimately it is. As uh, Matt rightly pointed us to Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is a place of peace. And we look forward to that day. But in this life, peace is not a place. It is a path that must be walked day in and day out. And it turns out you can very well veer off that path even if you've found it at some point. And if you've walked off that path and find yourself back in the darkness that is mentioned in verses 78 and 79 here, the light of Christ is waiting to veer you back onto the path of peace. But the second thing I would want to say is that the peace mentioned here and frankly throughout scripture is a threefold kind of peace? And I read you the John Wesley quote because I think he gets at the heart of it. It's a peace among our own very selves. When he says, John Wesley says, I would make them virtuous and happy, easy in themselves, I think this is what he is talking about. He wants us to have peace with ourselves, and God does too. Secondly, it's a peace with others. A peace with others. Wesley talks about having this peace within ourselves that we might be useful to others. Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace among others others, ourselves. But perhaps most importantly, and Wesley gets this, and this is the crux of this entire passage that we've been reading today, it is that we are to have peace with God. This is why Jesus comes at all. There is not peace with God pre-Jesus, B.C., And Jesus comes that we might have peace with God. Jesus is, as Wesley says, the mediator. What is his message good for? To make all who receive it enjoy God. This is where we're all heading. Or... The Christmas hymn, Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn king Peace on earth And mercy mild God and sinners Brought together again In peace. The more I dug into this passage for today, I just want you to know I, I love scripture. <laughs> I do, if you can't tell. And I want you to And as I, I read through it, what I found in Zechariah's prophecy is a remarkable statement of the Christian life writ large, of who you and I are meant to be in this life, and how we're supposed to live it. This is, as I said, the path of peace, a path that must be Walked, And I cannot offer you a destination just yet, but I can offer you a person, a Prince of Peace, whose light will guide you into peace with yourself, with others, and most importantly, with God. If only you will follow his ways and seek after him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Question You must ask yourself Is that your desire this morning? Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this holy hour, with your presence in our midst, Lord, we ask once again, that you move the hearts of your people. That you make us peacemakers. And that the peace we find be, first and foremost, a peace with you. A peace that can only come from you. And through that peace, the other peace comes. Peace with others. And even peace with our very selves that we might live in contentment and live at ease with ourselves and live in unity with our brothers and our sisters and that we might be peacemakers in this world god we thank you for all that you've given us and lord we bless your name blessed be the lord the god of Israel. For you have visited and redeemed your people. Amen.